Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Hi, John. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm all right. It's definitely spring down here in Devon. Sun's out. Got some very happy looking tulips in front of me on my desk today. So that's always nice. And earlier today, we chatted to Simon Bond, who is Director of Responsible Investment Portfolio Management at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, didn't we? That was a really good conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess one of the things we've tried to do throughout the series is look at individual asset classes. But also what we found is that there's different nuances within the same asset class. And so it's interesting to speak to different managers about their different areas of specialty and as you say, with Simon, it was really interesting to understand a bit more about social bond investing. We'd heard from AXA earlier on in the series about their views on fixed income, net zero investing, etc. So looking at a very, very niche area, but I think it is growing in more and more in popularity. So it was fascinating to hear his views. And I think it's probably the first asset manager where his surname relates specifically to his day job. <laughs> I don't think we've come across too many managers where you know bond and they invest in corporate bonds. So definitely no. first for me nominative determinism at its best. Exactly. Um, yeah, so Simon was one of the first people to sort of pioneer social bonds. So it was really interesting to talk to him. I, I mean, I don't want to say at the end of a long career in fund management, because it sounds as though he's got some really exciting other plans, but he is retiring officially from Columbia Threadneedle in about a month, I think he said. So just nice to kind of catch him in reflective mode thinking about how things have changed over that time, how much more popular and kind of better understood the whole social area of investing is now and to get his thoughts on the future as well. And what we're finding at the moment is greenwashing is definitely a concern amongst advisors and trustees of DC schemes. And social, to me at least, is definitely the vaguest out of the E and the S and the G. So if anything, you'd think that would be the one area where greenwashing could actually be quite easy in inverted commas to do. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear his views as to how they define social, how they make sure social investing is actually being done with the money they invest. So it was a really interesting session. Yeah, definitely. I thought he had a really clear vision of what social looks like. And I guess if you've been doing it for that amount of time, you probably would do, wouldn't you? So he's been managing social bonds for coming up to 10 years, I think, and other bonds, I think, for something fairly terrifying like 37 years before that. <laughs> yeah, he did look very happy, didn't he, when he mentioned that he was retiring in about yeah. this time. <laughs> I know. So anyway, it was a really good chat, Simon, and uh, we'll move on and hand over into the episode now. Hey, everyone. Just a few last bits of housekeeping from me before we jump into this episode. So we had a great chat to Simon. He was dialing in from his phone and right at the end, we lost him, which was really annoying. But he's made some great points in this episode. Um, and obviously, we did say thank you to him and finish up at the end. But it was the only bit of the whole recording that our amazing producers couldn't quite rescue. 
So we will sign off just a little bit abruptly at the end. But thanks so much, Simon, for talking to us. The other couple of things I wanted to say, the 28th of March, we'd love it if you could join us in person for our annual event, which is going to be a launch of some new research with Nico Aspinall into TCFD reporting. So we would love you to join us on the 28th. If you want some more details about the event, you can go onto the DCIF's website and everything you'll need is under the events tab there. So do go and check it out and hope to see you there. And finally, we're going to take a short hiatus. So this is the last episode. Then we're going to have a two-week break and we'll be back with you at the beginning of March, mostly just catching up on ourselves, to be honest. We've recorded loads of episodes now and it's just pinning down our final guests and guessing everything through production. So yeah, we will look forward to being back with you on the 3rd of March. So over to Simon. So Simon, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Really nice to meet you. We are talking over Zoom today and it's um, a pleasure to see your face. I'd just like to hear a bit about what you do and your long career at Columbia Threadneedle. We, we were just chatting before and you said it was 20 years. So um, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, it would be 20 years in June. I've been in financial markets 38 years, 33 specializing in corporate bonds. And wow. ultimately, that's what we will be going on to discuss in terms of how can you turn the asset class that's the clues in the name, bond, how can you turn that asset class to the good of society through the use of proceeds of the bonds that you buy? And that's really the nuance. So 10 years ago, we had a, an initial conversation with Big Issue, who eventually became our social partner. Ultimately, what do Columbia Threadneedle know about social? We're well known for our financial acumen. But the social partner really brings that rigor, expertise, and indeed holds our feet to the fire on delivering on the promises we make to investors on the social side of things. So there's a partnership that's developed through the life of the fund, which will reach its 10-year anniversary in December of this year. Amazing. So tell us a bit about social bonds for anyone who is uninitiated. What does it mean? What is a social bond? Yeah, what we mean by social bonds are any bonds that will deliver for society. Now, subsequently, social bonds are what are known as labelled products. So they are use of proceeds bonds um, as defined by the International Capital Markets Association. That gets very complicated. But ultimately, the fund was launched in December 13. In 2014, the green bond principles were established and Subsequent to that, in 2017, the social bond principles were established. And so we have now use of proceeds bonds, which are no more than just a typical corporate bond with a use of proceeds covenanted to do good for society, just like a green bond would do good for the environment. And secondly, an information covenant to report on the disbursement of those use of proceeds and in a similar way to a green bond would report on the environmental credentials and successes, then the same with a social bond. However, you can see that the approach predated that by quite some years. And indeed, when we actually sat on the ICMA committee that established the social bond principles, we were the only fund manager at the time that was actually physically doing it. So we could come up with tangible examples um, through the portfolio to actually establish this new category or a subcategory of bonds that are social bonds. I should just emphasize, though, we still stick to our principles, 
that we can buy any bond that does good for society, whether it's a labelled social bond or not. And indeed, we would still buy green bonds because green environmental causes, if we get the environment wrong, it's going to cause a massive problem for society through displacement and through rising levels of water, et cetera, for coastal communities, et cetera. And so actually we would regard social as part of what we were given by Big Issue, which is eight areas of social outcome to focus on. So again, our social partner defined what we mean by social, and that's eight areas of social outcome defined by Big Issue that we are targeting with the bonds that we buy. How wide is your definition of doing good for society? How do you go about classifying that? And I guess you've thought probably quite hard about what doing good for society means. Yeah, we take a use of proceeds approach. So what we will do is follow the money through to the use of proceeds and where effectively companies are spending that money. And we will define the good that it does for society through where and when and how that money is spent. That becomes a lot easier if we can predefine where that money is going. So, for instance, we wouldn't necessarily have invested in a government bond issue from the UK government because we don't know where the money's going and we don't know the good that it's doing. And in fact, in some cases, that may be doing less good than you would expect through nuclear weapons and arms and those kinds of things that the government spends 2019 for a green guilt. And ultimately, through a lot of working parties, a lot of work, et cetera, we got that across through forming a framework along with the Impact Investing Institute, the Green Finance Institute and the Grants and Research Institute to the government. And then the Green Guilts are announced. Now, we can buy a Green Guilt because with the Green Guilt, we know where the money is going through these proceeds because they can only spend an equivalent amount of the money that we give them on predefined environmental projects. And the reporting of that Green Guilt, we also managed to get through this concept of social co-benefits. So, yes, the reporting will include environmental benefits, but also social co-benefits if it's money spent in terms of deprived areas or if it's creating green-collar jobs. Those are kind of social concepts. So this wider aspect of impact, and this is an impact fund, it also includes environmental and social. So we kind of reject this idea of thinking about E and S and G in separate terms and try to build it all together in terms of the impact through the bonds that we buy and the use of proceeds. In terms of that use of proceeds, how easy is it to actually determine how the money has been spent? Is it something you guys do internally or is there some third party who follows the money and then reports back to you, something like an MSCI or someone else? We will basically take as evidence of that, and we have an evidence-based analytical approach. We will take any measure from wherever we can find it from anybody, MSCI, the companies themselves, etc. But sometimes actually that kind of evidence isn't available through published sources. And so a massive part of what we do is engagement, even for a stakeholder, like a bondholder who doesn't actually own physically part of a company. It's an enormously important thing to ask the right questions and sometimes questions that management are not expecting. So we will ask them about not director's remuneration, but because we focus on probably three things, we focus on additional contribution for society. We want new services, new facilities, new infrastructure for society, a focus on deprivation, so deprived communities within society, and then impact reporting itself. And so a lot of that kind of information comes from that engagement. Then the next question is, well, access to that kind of management information, that kind of engagement, those meetings, et cetera, they tend to come 
through the new issue process because management tend to be available when they want something, uh, particularly for bondholders. And what they want generally is money. And so that tends to be the new issue process. But equally, that particular new issue process is the time when a company through the bond issuance will borrow money from the market and spend that money in society. So actually, our best opportunity for engagement is also our best opportunity to actually achieve impact. So those two are quite aligned. But what we're looking for is evidence because it can be difficult. We haven't got a one size fits all social metric like a carbon metric for environmental. There are lots of different metrics which we need to focus on for education, for health, for employment, finance inclusion, and all of those kinds of things you would expect to find different but appropriate measurement. And so we have to go and find that. Just on that, you know, one of the, I suppose, concerns is greenwashing. And if you're having, not a validated source, but if you have to go and find the information yourself, is there a danger with a, perhaps a small D that the company can try and position something as a social bond, but in reality, they think they're more sophisticated than you guys are and can therefore sort of position it as social, but in reality, it's not actually a social bond or the money isn't being used for good means? Yeah, it's a very good question because actually I think we need to be asking that question each and every time that we engage on this particular aspect. And indeed, anybody investing in pension funds should be asking that question. It's what that's doing. By asking that question, it's shining a light on the darkest recesses of this particular part of the um, investment world, and quite rightly so. I think it's less of a problem for social than perhaps it might be for environmental because it's less of a focus and there is less expertise. And so what we tend to find with companies is they're not expecting the questions that we're asking and they are a little bit wrong-footed by that, whereas they may be prepared for the environmental questions and there may need to be a lot more verification and confirmation of those kind of aspects. As we develop the social bond market, that will increasingly become more of an issue not only is there greenwashing, but actually in terms of sustainability, there's something called rainbow washing, which is referring to the colours of the SDGs, those coloured boxes that you see everywhere, that's rainbow washing. And indeed, we could call social washing in our world, but it's less prevalent, I think. But nonetheless, it's still a very important question to ask. So what we're looking for is really verification of all of those aspects. And because we have an evidence-based approach, we need to find evidence of the good that these bonds are doing for society. Nothing wrong with keeping management on their toes, I suppose, is that from an investment <sighs> perspective. No, it's actually quite useful at the moment because what you can do if you're asking questions that they're not expecting is you can sometimes see through what they're doing to the culture behind it. You're actually wrong-footing them, but actually it's quite a useful thing anecdotally to see the culture behind it and whether they've got false answers in the, question, in the case of some companies that we deal with. And it's quite difficult to stop them talking. In other cases, of course, they are completely wrong-footed. And the answer is, well, we'll get back to you on that one. And they simply haven't really thought about it, let alone know the answer. So it's quite instructive, I think, in terms of the culture. And equally, what we're looking at within the ESG side of things, within the internal management practices, we're focusing on controversies, which, of course, greenwashing has a relationship with But what we look for with controversies, these things happen, things go wrong. Um, It's how management reacts to them that we think is important. Do they mitigate? Do they compensate? Do they make sure it's not going to happen again? And again, that is a very instructive kind of thing. 
when you're looking at the culture of a company, because that will give you confidence that if they have acted in the right way under controversial, under pressurized circumstances, you then have confidence they'll act in the right way going forward. And of course, that's what an investor is looking for. Just a follow-up question to the following the money and the use of proceeds. So yes, you might be comfortable that they're spending it on the right project, for example, but then do you actually measure the success of that project or is it just we're comfortable they've spent it on a project and you don't necessarily follow it to its end conclusion or yeah, we, the, the later stages we, of we, it? We do follow it. And in fact, one of the things that we ask management quite often, particularly with labelled social bonds, will say, well, we can't actually put that project in until it's finished because we won't be able to measure it. And that's totally wrong from our perspective. What we would like them to do and what we say all the time is a basic scientific principle. Set up your criteria for success or failure at the start of a project and then measure yourself during the life of that project against those criteria. And we will hold you to task. We wouldn't expect you necessarily to find 100% accuracy in your forecasting, but at least we will have a benchmark by which we can judge those projects and the use of those proceeds. And that way, you can include much more early stage, indeed embryonic projects, which will deliver for society going forward, because those that are completed have already delivered for society. And what we want are things that are going to deliver in the future. So Simon, as one of the pioneers of social bonds, how have you seen social bonds evolve over the last decade? Well, I think initially, I suppose what I was describing when Big Issue walked through the door and said, we want a product that shares our values. And we know big issue from the homeless people on the streets in terms of the kinds of things that they value. So I was able to actually communicate how the bond market used to deliver in those terms and should be delivering and will be delivering going forward if I have anything to do with it. But ultimately, I was describing impact. And impact is what we're really ultimately trying to achieve through these strategies. But in terms of delivering impact, it's over and above perhaps what a normal fund manager would look at, but it shouldn't sacrifice financial returns. And maybe 10 years ago, the change that we've seen is that I think impact was associated with two things, the measurement of the impact, clearly, and that hasn't changed, but also it was associated with the sacrifice of financial returns in order to achieve it. And to us, we weren't prepared to do that. Our fiduciary duty, and indeed, trustees and indeed consultants, the fiduciary duty is very much to deliver the return that you should expect for the risk that you're taking. And so we were thinking actually when we set up the product very much in these terms, very much about DC pension schemes as our target audience. And so we rejected the idea you need to sacrifice financial returns in order to try and optimize the good that you do for society. And I've spent the last nine and a quarter years proving that you don't need to sacrifice financial returns in order to achieve this. What we're not perhaps doing is delivering the maximized financial alpha, but we have this concept of social alpha. So we're looking to outperform the market on the basis of how we deliver for society through the bonds that we buy. And this concept of social alpha is is a, a term that we've coined ourselves, or I've coined myself. But nonetheless, I think those people that understand financial alpha can see the equivalent social alpha. So there's a little bit of an offset. But if you do start to sacrifice financial returns, you're not in the investment markets. You're into philanthropy, altruism, charitable endeavor, which equally is delivering impact and equally could do good for society, but it's not the world in which we exist. Interesting. Just taking that point a little bit further. So if we take 2022, which we know was a dreadful year for bonds, how did the social bond fund compare to say an all stocks credit index, just as an example? 
Yeah. In actually stating that you don't need to sacrifice finance returns in order to deliver, of course, we don't use a specialist benchmark. We use a generalist benchmark, which does include oil and gas, commodities, tobacco, all the sorts of things that we wouldn't invest in are nonetheless within the index. And so that way we can actually say that we can prove that you don't need to sacrifice financial returns. And clearly last year was a very good year for all of those so-called sin stocks or bonds in this particular case. We did actually manage to outperform last year nonetheless, unlike a lot of ESG funds, because we are looking to pull on all of those levers of alpha. And one of the things that we identified was a clear flattening of the yield curve um, so that we perceived a likelihood that interest rates would be rising as a result of these issues that we have in society. And it was fairly clear to us that through those rising interest rates, the yield curve would flatten. And so we are able to pull on those levers of financial alpha, those financial return aspects, because we're not sacrificing all of those principles that we have had and I have had for the last 33 years in managing corporate bond funds. We are actually encompassing those. Over and above that, we are also looking to deliver for society. Last year was a very, very difficult year for ESG funds. But those that have been running funds for a little bit longer than that, like myself, will just say that it's really paying back a little bit for the opposite effect that we saw in 2020. If you think about the height of the pandemic and of lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, the economic effect of that, what you saw during that period was oil and gas bonds underperforming, tobacco underperforming commodities underperforming. And all we've really seen is a payback for that. The most difficult thing last year actually was this sudden move back to normality in the bond markets. What we saw after the financial crisis was a very abnormal period. This period of quantitative easing drove interest rates down to levels that we'd never really seen before. And what we've seen is a snapback in that. Most of the time that I have been managing the fund, the one concern that people have is of the asset class itself. Why should you buy corporate bonds? Why should you buy bonds? Clearly, interest rates are going to go up. Clearly, yields are going to rise. And over most of that period, all they did was just go down further, delivering more and more return for the bond markets. What we saw last year was a snapback. So now we are really at the bottom of a more normal range in terms of yields. So actually, when people ask me, why should I buy bonds? Well, yields are back. And corporate bonds deliver more than government bonds. And so yields are more prevalent within corporate bonds. And so actually, the asset class itself has suddenly become something that people are able to consider again in terms of a normal policy, in terms of value. They always were going to have that part of a normal modern portfolio theory mix of different asset classes to deliver the return that you want for the risk. But now, actually, there is some value in the corporate bond market. Now you can actually see some relative value relative to other asset classes. So just um, go back to the point about financial health versus social health. So when you're talking to clients about it, the market is what the market is. But do you then sort of break down any difference between the fund and the comparator in terms of social alpha and financial alpha? Or is it just one number that you tend to quote? No, we do. In terms of the financial alpha, it's fairly obvious you can report on the outperformance. The fund has outperformed since inception. It's outperformed over three and five years. I think around about what we promise investors is around about the risk um, is a corporate bond risk. You should expect a corporate bond return. And we hope to deliver financial alpha over and above that to pay you back for the cost of active management. This is an active management policy. 
we perceive that to be around about 15 basis points, around about half of an AMC, if you think about 30 basis points annual management charge. And we've actually delivered over three and five years, more than that, double that, actually 30 basis points ahead. Social alpha is more difficult conceptually until the fact that I can explain to you that we actually score and we actually have a concept of social intensity. So we have high, medium and low social intensity, which is individually per bond ascertained by our impact analysts and then presented to a social advisory committee on which our social partner sits. And we are held to task in terms of that social intensity of the portfolio. And what I have been given by the social advisory committee, including big issue, is a target. So they wanted to see initially about a third, a third, a third high, medium, low social intensity. And they accepted that that third in low social intensity was something that they needed to allow me because one, low social intensity is still net good for society, just not as good as medium and high. But two, those low social intensity type bonds allow me to deliver the diversification, the liquidity, it's the daily price, daily liquid fund, the financial side of things to deliver on the financeability to be able to have a bit of a wider, broader base universe to be able to deliver on both of those aspects. So that's how we prove that we're delivering the social alpha. And indeed, an independent report that has just come out from our social partner would actually be evidence of that as well, because an impact report, you'd expect an impact fund to have an impact report, and it's just been published, and it's published by our social partner, not by Columbia Threadneedle. And it shines a light on the portfolio in different ways in order to prove the good that the portfolio is doing for society. So that, I suppose, ultimately is the test that there is an independent report, or at least as independent as a social partner can be. <laughs> so, Simon, in terms that, of... Sorry, do you sort of track that split between the low, medium and high? Because I do. imagine there's a success factor. Could you say that the bonds that you're buying and the, the issuers you engage with actually helps them move from having low social intensity to perhaps medium social intensity? Or is that perhaps not something you tend to monitor as much? No, that's spot on. That's exactly what we do. So we have a monthly track record all the way back to when the fund was started about the split between high, medium and low. We engage with particular issuers in order to get them to issue better bonds that deliver more intense results for society. So we would encourage even what you might describe in the market as a pure play Somebody like a, a Welcome Trust, who is delivering on hopefully healthcare benefits through the research that they're doing, or a Motability providing transport solutions for disabled people, or indeed housing associations providing social housing for the most deprived in society, we would still encourage them to issue more intense, more focused bonds. And that generally would be an encouragement to try and issue rather than issuing general corporate purpose bonds, where the money is just generally used in the way that that particular entity does its business, we would want something that's much more specific and a use of proceeds approach that is specifically targeting social benefits. So we've had some success recently in even housing associations who are issuing social bonds. So you would say a housing association being a not-for-profit organization, a charity, et cetera, should be delivering for society and everything it does. But actually, there can be a more development-led housing association or a more community-based housing association. So there can be a differentiation there. In fact, I had this conversation with John Bird, who set up 
big issue, um, Lord John Bird, I should give him his correct title, um, he talked about some of the worries he had about, he described sink estates and those kinds of concepts. But I turned that around and said, what we really want to do is focus on housing associations that deliver houses that are a launch pad, a launch pad for aspiration, pad being the operative word with its association with a, a property, but they ought to be launch pads for social aspiration, for economic aspiration. They ought to, as the big issues mantra is, giving a hand up rather than a hand out. That ought to be the way that we approach social housing, and it is. Amazing. Simon, I was really just going to finish up by asking you how optimistic you feel as you retire about social bonds in the future and the role they have to play, like any kind of final reflections as you step away from the day job, I suppose. Well, what we've seen, I suppose, more recently has been a broadening of people's perspectives away from just environmental to the wider issues. And that clearly is because we've just been through a social crisis, the pandemic. That was not only a health crisis, it was an educational crisis, it was an employment crisis. You know, these are social issues. And I think also economically, we've seen that it has been the most vulnerable, the most deprived sectors of communities that have suffered the most. So unfortunately, these issues are not going away. In fact, they are getting worse. And what the market needs to do, because I believe in the power of economics, the power of the markets, the power that we have within financial markets to actually do more than just deliver the financial return, I think we can rise to the challenge. And indeed, we have seen a massive increase in the amount of labelled social bonds, particularly in 2020. As a result of these kinds of issues that we saw, that kind of issuance, I think, will continue. I think the problems for society at the moment are not going to be going away. We have a cost of living crisis. We have all sorts of consequences of not only the war in Ukraine, but the ongoing consequences of the pandemic itself, which, again, I think the longer term consequences still need to be addressed. The fact that we are out of lockdown, the fact that we are now into a more normal kind of environment doesn't mean that the consequences will have gone away. I think people will have suffered during that particular period, and those consequences will be those that we need to face in the future. So am I optimistic? It doesn't sound very optimistic, does it? <laughs> Not but actually, <laughs> I'm optimistic about the no, I'm optimistic about the ability of financial markets to not solve the problem, but perhaps to contribute their part to solving these sorts of problems that society faces. So I think the development of the market more to encompass these social aspects is a very good thing. The idea of the just transition and Columbia Threadneedle have just joined the Just Transition Finance Challenge. The concept there is that if we're going to transition to net zero, actually, there are going to be winners from that, but equally, there are going to be losers. And what we saw during the transition, let's say, of the steel industry and the coal industry was that society and the communities were just let go. What mm. we want to do is avoid through applying ourselves to the just transition. We want to avoid any future full Monty film being released at the cinemas because effectively that was about the decline of Sheffield as a steel producing community. And it was just let go. The just transition is addressing perhaps maybe communities that at the moment may seem to be fairly wealthy, fairly well off, etc. And I think, John, about Aberdeen, the boom town of the oil and gas industry in the 1980s, just as Sheffield and the coal and mining areas were doing very badly during that period. It was a boom time for Aberdeen. Well, actually, if you're in Aberdeen at the moment, I've 
been told John Lewis has closed down. Anecdotally, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for those kinds of areas that relied on fossil fuels. And we need to transition. We need to re-educate, repurpose, and in some cases, re-employ those kinds of people. But the good news is that I think we have the ability to do a lot better job than we did perhaps in the 1980s for those areas I've just mentioned. Well, Simon, I think we've probably taken enough of your time up, but thank you so, so much for talking to us today. It's been really, really interesting, and I'm sure all our listeners will enjoy our conversation as well. So thank you. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World, New Opportunities.